Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelicone. And welcome to our first episode, episode 59 of 2020. Tonight's episode is going to focus on the top five spaghetti westerns. Uh, Frank, I think we've talked about this probably since last year at some point, about the eventuality of doing yeah. this episode. Uh, <coughs> Why did you want to start 2020? You ended up, I think, choosing like this for the first episode. Yeah, um, I don't know. It's something that I've wanted to do since we did the modern westerns. Mm. Um, I'm a pretty big fan of the the tone and the setting of like the spaghetti westerns. Um, I think there's a lot of a lot of pretty immediate influence on like 70s film and like into the 80s and 90s from like a lot of this genre. And there's a lot of there's a lot of crap in the spaghetti westerns because they were turned out like dozens a year probably even more than that at some point um but you know there's some really great movies that came out of it and some really iconic film roles and it really made um several people that we recognize today um you know as like i don't know what the word you would look for but like superstars i suppose of that era um kind of made them and made their reputations um and it really was a place where people who were kind of like established film stars that maybe sort of like fallen out of favor could go and like have good roles and um you know make money and be in movies um yeah a little bit later and during some of the movies we discuss i want to actually like talk to you about <clears throat> some of those actors and see if you know anything about like how they ended up being in some of these positions especially a couple well-known actors at the yeah. time um and just in addition to that like you know the direction is usually really good um, on the ones, at least on the list that we're talking about. Um, they deal with, like, plot lines that I'm particularly fond of in, like, the terms of, like, revenge and, you know, like, the weak, like, overcoming the strong. And, um, oh, there's just a lot of... Also not afraid to borrow from other genres in terms of, like, their storylines and whatnot. Um... I don't know, just, I, I always really enjoy them. Uh, it's not very often where I watch a spaghetti western where I'm bored or annoyed or anything. Like, I usually even, like, the ones that are not great, like, I can sit down and be entertained by them. Do you know how this um, genre kind of developed at all? I mean, it's, like, early 60s, I suppose. Um, I don't know. Like, Italian production companies, like, making... I'm trying to think what the general like first yeah i don't know was honestly. it cheaper well i mean I, they could film in spain and italy right and you could pay mostly you would either get like stars from those countries or like lesser known stars or you could pay you like a well-known international star a decent amount of money but then have like no production cost anywhere else mm-hmm. um not difficult. I mean, like, most of your sets are just natural, you know, like, canyons and prairies and whatever. Um, so not really much in terms of having to, like, film on location or build, like, extravagant sets. And even when they had to build sets, you're building, like, you know, wooden buildings, and I don't think right. that's... Well, just having, like, re- recently rewatched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, they call the area where they're filming that episode, um, the... Uh, Rick Dalton characters filming an episode of a TV show. They call that area like uh, 
old West Town or Western right. Town or something like that. And it was, and they knew like the streets and stuff like that. So it was obvious that it wasn't just right. for that one Western. It was set up for like all Westerns to be able to, it was like a small town they had just created on a set. And so even that production cost goes down. Yeah. And, because I, of and that, I think because in a lot so many, of ways, like even if you like reuse sets, you only have to change a couple things and yeah. who's ever really paying attention to the saloon or the, you know, a sure. couple of houses because there's every... one, well there's one of these movies specifically i because I, I i'm not this close when it comes to like visual detail but um for establishing shots for some reason i am it's kind of like when we've had this discussion about what was it like um company of wolves and crawl i think right. it was i think used the same set you, you think company of wolves and excalibur used excalibur the same used the same set yes yeah. um crawling Crawl, crawl I think I've tried to expel Excalibur from my mind so much that I always think it's Crawl. But, right. Uh, there's there's one of these where they're coming down a street and they're the the characters in the establishment shot are like coming towards you, and there's a sign that says like Saloon at one point, and then it's the same shot, and I swear it's the exact same street, and they've just changed the sign from Saloon to another thing. Yeah, I mean that's possible. Yeah. I I always feel like there's a lot of recycled sets between. Um, a lot of these movies. There's very few movies where the town is so... Like, whatever. Like, the um, civilized setting is so unique that you can tell that it's its own. Right. Um, not, not that this is Spaghetti Western, but you think of something like... Um, like High Plains Drifter or something, where the town is, like, so very specific that you... If, if you saw right. that town again, you would know that it was the same set. Sure. But typically, they're... You know, it's just generally like a dusty thoroughfare and a couple of side streets and, you know, even stuff like Deadwood, which had high production value. I mean, there's not much more than that in Deadwood. Right. Yeah. So. Um, one of the things that surprised me, because I honestly did not know this, and maybe it's dumb of me or I should have, um, is I didn't realize how the lack of respect the genre had contemporaneously. Yeah. I mean, like they were nobody just, yeah. really liked these movies. Um, it's like it gets respected. It seems to me like maybe starting late seventies, people sure. start kind of respecting a little bit more, and then and then it's like firmly established by the nineties that a lot of a lot of the good movies out of the genre are really good. Right. And well, you had a lot of people that became prominent directors in the nineties. Tarantino, uh, Rodriguez, um, John Woo, I'm assuming like, yeah, is influenced in part by these. I mean, you figure that like Sam, not, not that Sam Peckinpah made spaghetti Westerns, but he was like kind of firmly within that same like realm was not necessarily considered like a respected director until like the nineties. Yeah. And you know, Tarantino especially would find like these movies and sort of become champions of them and like steal liberally from their plot lines and things like that kind of like brought it more into the public conscience. My, my love of spaghetti Westerns comes from, um, I want to say it was, we, we, we talk about this cause there was three things that, um, I want to say it was UPN in Baltimore channel 54. That might've been there. Yeah. I, I think that was UPN. They did horror movies, Kung Fu movies and Westerns. Mm-hmm. And it was like blocks on Saturdays after cartoons were over. And that led you into the evening. So every and, week I would watch, you know, typically in some combination, like a horror movie, a Western and a, um, you know, like a Kung Fu movie. And so all three of those genres are pretty, pretty dear to my heart. But um, I always loved the Westerns. 
even though like a lot of times they tend to be very similar um they're also very cannibalistic as a genre like they steal liberally from each other mm. and you find a lot of stuff like like um there's Sergio Carbucci Django uh 1966 and then there's like a dozen Django movies in like five years after that mm-hmm. almost none of which contain any of the original cast or anything it's just they take the name um same with uh Sartana is another recurring character um it's like, what is it? Like, if you meet Sartana, pray for your death or something like that is the first Sartana movie. And then there's like four Sartana movies that have the same principal actor in them. Um, I can't remember who directed those. But then there's like a whole bunch. And then there's like Sartana meets Django. And it was almost like they would just pick and choose these characters that they wanted to. Same with like... Um, Horror genre would do the same thing though a lot of times, right? Like but by they putting were taking, up different characters in the same movie. Yeah, they were taking more like... Like the, the, this is the Wolfman or this is the Mummy or right. Dracula. You know, like they're very like... Almost like mythological creatures that they're mm-hmm. taking. I mean, this stuff was... You know, there's so many movies that are like... For a few dollars less. For a barrel full of dollars. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And like... What's the other one that they steal a lot from? Um, you get dollars a lot, and you get a uh, f- fistfuls a lot, and dollars a lot. And then there's a lot of movies that are just super long titles. Like <clears throat> there's a Django movie that almost made this list because I like it a lot, but it's not Franco Nero, who to me is like Django, um, called Django Shoot or Django Kill. If you live, shoot. And there's like all these movies, just these ridiculous titles, that, right? A lot of times they're just almost non sequiturs. Which again, Tarantino <clears throat> makes fun of in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a yeah. little bit with the titles and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, it's like if you meet Sartana, prepare your own coffin or something mm-hmm. like that. They're just yeah, but they tend to be hyper violent for the yeah. time. Um, they tend to be really bloody. Um, they're almost. They also tend to like explore more interesting interesting like social angles because there's not like the constraints of like being in a studio setting and they can do whatever they want so people are willing to be more open about things like i don't know like like prostitutes tend to play a more i don't know positive role in these movies um there's a question of like what really constitutes someone being a bandit or you Mm -hmm. know a lawman and I don't know, they're just, they're always really interesting. Not not always, but for the most part. Yeah, really I mean, a lot of these movies, it seems, deal with the gradation of morality. Um, yeah. Of what is moral and what is not. And and again, because mostly it's about, like, somebody getting revenge on somebody else. Sure. Um, and the setting is really nice, too. Like, wherever they're filming, um, and mostly, again, I think, like, Spain and Italy, you get, like, these big canyons and mountains and prairies and... Um, which is also like interesting um, when the setting changes, it becomes pretty cool too. Yeah. Um, but it was a lot of times international productions, um, a lot of German spaghetti westerns, um, Italian, Spanish. Um, there's some like American, European co-production spaghetti westerns, right. but for the most part, it was European countries just filming on the cheap and yeah. releasing a movie. To, like, a studio that would buy yeah. it for almost nothing. I just thought it was interesting because I would see critics um, of the time period, like Ebert and stuff like that, mention, like, four, like even po- positive reviews. It would be, like, things like 
for a spaghetti western, right? This was good, all right. Well, you had you know Houston and Ford were yeah. like the big western names, and it was John Wayne and I don't know. I think we talked about this previously, but that's kind of how you separate. I mean, I don't know. It's how scholars would separate the time periods, but it really is kind of like the the Houston Ford time period, the yeah. spaghetti westerns, and then the more modern kind of post, or I would say postmodern like era um, that we kind of discussed in whatever it was, episode 817, I think, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, there, because there was a lot of, in the 60s, a lot of, um, the 50s and 60s, a lot of um, television serials, which is another right. thing they kind of satirize in yeah. um, Once Upon a Time in America. Um, you know, so you had Gunsmoke, um, the Kentuckian, I think, was one. Um, there was another long-standing one that Bonanza. Yeah, Bonanza. Yeah. Um. So there was still interest in like the old West and whatnot, but I think it was kind of fading out more towards like, because you know John Wayne starts doing like more war movies and right uh, movies that aren't necessarily about like whatever, like tough men or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Really, like, there still is a decent amount of, like, interest in Westerns in through the 70s. And Robert Redford and Clint Eastwood specifically, like, even after, like, Eastwood moves away from doing spaghetti Westerns, is still doing, you know, Outlaw Josie Wales and High Plains Drifter. Mm-hmm. And Robert Redford does, what, Jeremiah Jones and um, right. some other one in, like, the late 70s he's in. So, I mean, people were still going to see him. Yeah. I just think there's a feeling of, like freedom that comes with like identifying with the character in a western of mm-hmm. like being able to just get on your fucking horse i guess and ride off and establish your own claim and yeah. i mean unfortunately i guess the lesson you get from spaghetti westerns is you're just gonna die right but, yeah i i it's, it's not a genre that i'm i don't want to say fond of uh, there's plenty of movies i really love in the genre but it's something i wasn't exposed to much growing up it was only my father didn't watch old westerns. He only, if he watched any, it was spaghetti westerns or any like new ones that came out, like you know, Unforgiven, yeah. Tombstone, like you know those kind of things. Um, so I, I wasn't exposed that much, and he was much more in the sci-fi. So he tended to like turn those movies on if they were on, like you know, we always talk about yeah. my most hated movies, like Logan's Run and stuff like that. Mm. Um, which are just, although I have been slowly and I keep falling asleep watching Buckaroo Banzai. Um, <clears throat> oh, slowly I'm getting like 15 minutes at a time. I'm getting through it. Should do a double header of that and Remo Williams. <laughs> yeah. Because I've seen Buckaroo Banzai in a long time. Now. I haven't either, honestly, but I. I have fond memories of Buckaroo yeah. Bonsai. So, so um, were there any other movies <clears throat> that came close? I know you mentioned the the one. Yeah, um, I thought about Django movie. the first Django and the first Sartana movie on there. Mm-hmm. Um, they're difficult to find, so I mm-hmm. didn't. Um, I wanted to make sure it was stuff that. I, I mean, I think like all things being equal, they're no better than the ones that were picked. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely. The, the the top three on this list are, in my opinion, by far the three best spaghetti westerns. Um, and then I would even argue the top four. Um, and then the fifth one was interchangeable, but I picked one that I found was more like interesting plot-wise. And just in terms of like... So one of the biggest tropes of the spaghetti western is like... The indomitable like individual. Like the guy that's almost unkillable. He's the fastest gun. 
he's the most clever. He's the one that's able to like get out of these insurmountable situations. So I always find it interesting in a spaghetti western where it kind of like breaks from that mold where it's not like, you know, I mean, there's a line in um, not this really relates, but there's a line in uh, the killer we talked about last week, I guess, right? Um, give a man a gun yeah. and he's Superman. Give a man two and he's God yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it's that idea where you've got these guys that are just able to like pull out like two pistols and like shoot like six guys at once. And right. No one can outdraw them. And the end result is that there's like the bad guy is just whatever taken out by the hero who's overcome these odds. And I always find it interesting where it's not that way. Where like um, there's a really good Western called Handy Calder, um, spaghetti Western called Handy Calder, where it's like a, a female character is the lead, which mm-hmm. is interesting. Yeah. Um, like, Duck You Sucker is really good. Um, again, like, the first Django movie, a couple of the Django movies, a couple of the Sartana movies are good. Mm-hmm. And I thought about... Um, another one that... <clears throat> it isn't a spaghetti western, but to me it's, like, the spiritual successor to the spaghetti western, which is um, Sam Peckinpah's uh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, mm-hmm. um, which is one of my favorite, I guess, like, neo-westerns. Um, that sort of came after, like, that time period. And yes. honestly, like, one of the movies that he felt he had the most creative control over I mean, um that's, that's right around the time period of like that's like 74 maybe yeah, 74 okay, 75 yeah, i think right, something yeah. like that so that's right at the tail end of yeah well the spaghetti westerns so again it's like it's also it's the move more away from western sci-fi and into like horror i think that mm-hmm. kind of kills the spaghetti western um and i don't know that like i'm not obviously like a historian or anything but mm-hmm. i just feel like there was more volume being put out of like these quickie like horror movies that would have been pushed into like your you know dollar cinemas or whatever um and maybe just the changing like social climate that kids were more interested in like i don't know playing war than like playing like cowboys and indians or whatever um although when i was a kid i always had like um six shooter cap guns and you know, like pop guns that looked like the uh, Winchester, like repeaters or whatever. So, but yeah, it's a genre that I really like a lot. Um, one of my favorite genres in general, just being Western. So, so what else do I mean? Well, maybe that's a conversation for later, but it's like just a spur of the moment. What else in terms of Westerns could you see us doing at some point? Oh, man, that'd be hard. Um, I mean, maybe like best like characters in westerns or best like performances. Um, again, there's this whole big range of seventies, like late sixties to late seventies westerns that I think are fantastic. Like High, High Plains Drifter, and I've said it now twice. One of my favorite westerns of all time. Mm-hmm. Um. I don't know. Like, I don't know. I, I would really have to think about, like, what else would be an interesting conversation with, with Westerns. Mm. Maybe, like, pre, pre-Spaghetti pre Western Westerns. Because, I mean, right. that's a much more distinct list for me. Although I could come up with five, like, pretty easily, I think. But the old stuff, especially the stuff from, like, the Stagecoach era of Westerns, like, mm-hmm. is much more difficult to watch in a lot of ways and there's got to be like they really have to i don't know be impressive for me to really enjoy them 
Um, but I also feel like they don't take advantage as much of like the setting or just it's always like kind of like a white knight type thing, and yeah. it's not as interesting. It's like the white hat, black hat type thing. And yeah. Which I think the color choices in some of these movies is really interesting and is definitely speaking back towards some of that at different points. Yeah, there's... I can't remember who directed There's a movie called The Furies from the 50s or 60s that's kind of like a pseudo-Western that's really good. Um, obviously, like Liberty Valance is really good yeah. in The Searchers. and I do enjoy Stagecoach, and I like the original True Grit. And well, we might be able to break down, that since it's a larger time frame, I think, like, maybe over the course of the next couple of years, break it down by decade. Yeah. Like 40s, 50s, you know, Oof. 60s for traditional. 40s would be hard. <laughs> um, I have to watch a lot of movies. <laughs> oh, sorry. Alright, so, um, we'll go ahead and get started on your top five, but, um... Just so, just quickly, remember, if um, anybody has any ideas for us, you can contact us on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, Frank's coaster art is um, getting a lot of attention on Instagram recently. Um, thank you for all of our followers um, <clears throat> there. Uh, next week, we are going to be doing the top five movies with female protagonists. Uh, and then the week after that, we're going to be doing the top five 1978 horror movies um and that's what we'll be doing for the month of january after this episode so i just wanted to let everybody know that now early as opposed to um at the end where um you've already fallen asleep yeah right. <laughs> i was trying to think of a nice way to not be not make the self-deprecating joke but um um or frank's falling asleep <laughs> it's, 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 it's true okay so number five on your um List is Four of the Apocalypse. It's from 1975. One of the things I was looking up over here, Frank, was like I saw a term related to movies that are late in the genre. Apparently, they call it, uh, and I couldn't remember, they call it Twilight Spaghetti. Oh, okay. Um, so it's a, this is one of those movies from 1975. It's directed by Lucio Fulci, um, well-known horror director. Stars Tomas Millian, Michael J. Pollard, Lynn Fedrick, and Fabio Testi. It's a doesn't have a rating from critics because there are so few. Um, has a fifty six percent from audiences. Hmm. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie and why you included it here at number five? Uh, so the central idea of the movie is this guy um, Stubbs is a professional gambler who comes into this town, is immediately arrested and jailed by the sheriff, um, <clears throat> because the sheriff knows that the saloon is going to get shot up, and so he basically saves this guy's life. Um, the only people in the town that survive are Stubbs, um, a prostitute named Bunny, um, a mentally handicapped man, <clears throat> and like another kind of like half-wit named Clem. Um, they take, the sheriff takes Stubbs' money and possessions, gives him a wagon, and lets them leave town. Um, so, they... I don't really want to describe, like, too much of the movie. Generally, there's, like, these series of events that happen. Um, they meet an Amish... Not Amish. Amish? Group of, like, Amish missionaries, mm. I guess. Um, who sort of, like, take them in and help them out. And then um, they run afoul of a group of bandits, but are saved by this uh, Mexican gunman named Chaco. Um, who, like, offers to be their food provider and like protection basically because they have no way to protect themselves um he turns on them um it turns out that bunny is pregnant and bunny and um stubs fall in love 
Um, basically, everybody dies. Um, and the end is Stubbs going to get his revenge on Chaco. Um, so, number one, I really like Lucio Fulci a lot. And it's always interesting to me when he when to see a movie that he directs that's not like an overt horror movie. Um, and even though I think there's still like some kind of like, I don't know, like nascent, like ideas that he follows in his horror movies here, specifically like insanity and I don't know, like desolation and, um, just like the fact that Chaco and his men are like mass murderers and, um, but I think it's. So this is kind of like what I was referring to and that Stubbs is not like some kind of badass gunslinger. He's just like a shifty gambler, basically. Mm -hmm. Like he's a card sharp. Right. Um, But over the course of time, like this group of people like gain respect and friendship and even love in the case of, you know, Stubbs and Bunny. And then he's devastated like when she dies in childbirth and... Um, there's this town of like ruffians who are kind of, I don't know if rehabilitated, but sort of like re-energized by the birth of this child. And it's sort of like they adopt the kid and it's like, they take him in and it's just for the majority of the movie, it's so much different than what you would normally see in like a spaghetti Western that I, I always found it kind of refreshing almost in a way, even though it's not like necessarily the most uplifting movie like there's a lot of really good things that happen in it and again it's interesting when your main characters are not like you know these grizzled super talented like gunfighters when it's like someone that's different than that so um i like a lot of the fulci is always weird because i don't know that fulci's ever really good at directing people like fulci's more good at directing like scenes that just happen to have people in them um, so there's some weird, like, directorial choices with, and we talked about this off air a little bit, like, the way he films reaction shots, the way he films, um, I don't know, like, it's just weird the way that he captures, like, human beings on film. Like, weird close-ups sometimes mm-hmm. that don't really make much sense. Um, but I also think that there's some really good performances in it, like, especially... Um, Stubbs and Bunny, like, I like them a lot. And the guy that plays Chaco, I think, is really, like, a great villain. Um, and it's, it's strange because it, it, and I think you and I watched the same, uh, transfer of this movie. Like, it's not a good transfer. So I'm a little, I don't think I've ever seen a good, <clears throat> clear copy of this movie. Although maybe it's just the way that Fulci filmed it, that it's, like, so like obscured and washed out like the colors and everything and it just feels fuzzy like the whole time you're watching it um yeah i think we both watched this on tubi um and depending on they they get different versions like copies of the movie and i don't know if this has been like kind of touched up or remastered anywhere like like, I, I don't know if there was a DVD. I mean, sure, there was a DVD yeah, of it. Yeah, that's, that's where I saw it originally. But is it just a transfer maybe from VHS or was See, it cleaned up? See, but that's the thing or... is, yeah, I, I can't remember. Yeah, so I if I feel like this might be an old VHS, like, original print kind of thing where right. it wasn't really touched up at all, and to, that's what Tubi has up right now. Which, yeah. which I think probably does the film a little bit of a disservice, maybe. But if, for being, like... 
I mean, the whole movie is about these situations that are born out of violence a lot of times. And for being like, you know, and that's pretty traditional for a spaghetti western, that it's about like change brought by like the violence of man, I guess, or whatever. Um, but it's kind of like a poignant movie in that respect. And the fact that this guy who's, I mean, Stubbs is kind of a scumbag for the first mm-hmm. part of the movie. Like, Absolutely. And the fact that he falls in love with this woman who's, you know, she's a prostitute, like, and she's pregnant and he falls in love with her because they are pretending to be married out of convenience for like a portion of the movie. And then they sort of start to develop real feelings and finally admit those feelings and like are basically living as like man and wife. I mean, it's just kind of a, I don't know. Again, it's, it's, it's always interesting when you see that change where the power is kind of removed from the protagonist and put into the hand of like the, the antagonists or just like nature in general. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I just really enjoyed it. Um, it's a movie that I saw later, I guess in my life. Like it's not one that I saw like early or if I did, I don't remember it, but like I saw it probably about 10 to 12 years ago, I guess for the first time. And was just really impressed by like the storytelling and like the general like tone of the movie and yeah, it was certainly an interesting movie. It focused a lot more on character building and relationship building between characters. Yeah. And I think with that weird, I think it's a weird subplot with the town and the kid and everything. But um, I still see the kind of the idea that it's a sense of community and you know like hope and those kind of things um that thematically are there but i i just don't think he does like a great job in the setup of linking all those things together a lot of times um it's it's a weird movie like it's it's not bad and and it's got a lot of really interesting ideas but like there's something with fulci to me where his through lines just aren't strong sometimes of like what the movie is trying to do and, um, but I, I did find like the, the idea that it's like these people that are just kind of like, almost like your stereotypes, like the prostitute, the drunk, the gambler, um, of how they're kind of just like normal people of the era end up like, you know, forming this like little family. And then once violence happens to that family, then it becomes right. a revenge story. And I do think that the, by the end, it's, um. Pretty the, traditional. The, pay, the payoff, well, the payoff works yeah. because you become more attached to those characters over time. Right. So, I, but it takes a it takes a long time to get there uh, with some stuff. Some stuff. Some stuff. Yeah, I mean, we we've this is I think the third Fulci movie we've talked about. Maybe um, he's he's great with ideas. He's bad with details. Yeah, and like your your point is correct. Like he's really bad with like the through line of a film. Um. But it's always, like, interesting getting there, I think. Yeah. Like, I really like the way he films stuff, and yeah. I just think this is a really interesting take on, like, a pretty traditional story, yeah. so. Yeah, it was interesting. I'd never seen it before. I've just heard you mention it in the past. Okay, so you ready to move on to number four? Yep. Okay, so number four on your list is 1968 film The Great Silence, directed by Sergio Corbucci, starring Jean-Louis Trontino. Klaus Kinski, Frank Wolf, and Vanetta McGee has a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and 90% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about it so much? Uh, so the movie follows a um, character named Silence, uh, who's a bounty killer killer, who's moving through, um, where is it, Montana, do they say, or Wyoming? 
Um, Isn't there the a sign for Fargo at one point? It's Wells Fargo. Oh, okay. Is gotcha. the sign on the oh, okay. the general store? I thought that same thing. Yeah. I was like, oh, I wonder if this is North Dakota. But then again, anyway. So he happens upon a group of um, bounty hunters who are looking to kill this group of criminals, basically, who are hiding out in the wilderness. Um, they've all been convicted of petty crimes, but they're crimes that would send them to jail. So they're kind of like trying to wait out. A pers- like an anticipated amnesty from the governor uh, so they can re-enter society but until then they have to like stay aloof um, Silence murders the five or six like bounty killers that are there um, goes into town sort of runs afoul of um, the shady banker that kind of controls the money in the town and it's Later find out is the one that sort of gets these men accused of crimes to drive them out so he can profit off of them. Um, and a group of bounty hunters that are there, uh, led by um, Loco, uh, Klaus Kinski's character. And then, basically it's just what you would think would be, like, in a traditional western silence would like basically murder them all and chase everybody out of town and um he basically kind of gets his ass beat and then gets murdered and then the bounty killers murder everyone in the town um it's a very bleak look at what's probably the actual way a situation like that would play out when you have a group of like trained armed men um Including Loco killing the sheriff of the town, like, right. shoot, basically like shooting him into, a, like, a frozen river where he dies. Um, the first time you see this movie, you know, because there's a lot of lot of films in this genre where the hero has, like, a temporary downfall where he's incapacitated or he's beaten or he's near death and then he comes back and is able to, like, exact revenge and, like, kill the antagonist. So, the whole time you're kind of waiting for... Something to happen with Silence where he, like, regains his ability. Because he gets his hand badly. He's he shot in the arm or the shoulder and then he gets his hand badly burned. And, like, he's really, like, incapacitated. And you're kind of waiting for him to sort of come back and, you know, like, come back and be able to, like, kill the people. Or the sheriff to come back and, like, save everyone. and Or at least save Silence so that he can, like, recuperate and come back. But they just all die, you know, right. and the coda to the movie is basically that supposedly based on a real massacre that happened, um, in the late 1800s that led to like the reform of the bounty hunter laws so that men can no longer like basically like kill like other people and bring them in. Mm-hmm. Um, a really good performance by, and look, you, you said his name, Trontano. Trontano. Like, for me, he's been John Louis Trintignant my entire life. <laughs> Trintignant. Yeah. I mean, I think I saw him for the first time in a movie in, like, 1993 or 94. Like, like, because he's in The Conformist. He plays the main character in The Conformist. And, uh, Bernard, Bernardo Bertolucci's movie, The Conformist. Uh-huh. Um, so that's where I knew him from originally. Um, I didn't see this movie until probably 2002, maybe. When it was released, it was released on DVD, like, in the early 2000s, because it was not available for a long time. I had no idea it existed until then. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was surprised to see him in it, but, like, he's really good in it. Um, 
despite like being a mute character. Yeah. Uh, Kinski is just, you yeah. know, he's just Klaus Kinski. Like, yeah. he's, he's amazing. He's, he's a guy that, he's like my Donald Sutherland 2.0. Right. I pretty much will enjoy any movie that Klaus yeah. Kinski's in, even if it's not a good movie. Um, but especially as this kind of just despicable bounty hunter, he's, his, his face fits that really right. well. And the, the fact that, like, until he really, like, is put in a position where he, like has to murder the sheriff to save himself from going to jail. He's not, he's just a dude doing a job. Like he's not, not, he, n- not to say that he's played as sympathetic at all. Right. But from his all. perspective, he's not like, like a violence crazed killer or anything. He's just, this is how he earns money. Mm. And it's easier to bring him in dead than alive because there's no chance of them escaping. Um, the setting is amazing, like, when you consider that the majority of Westerns and everything else on this list is set in, like, the, you know, the dusty desert of, like, the American West, um, and this is set in, you know, an impending snowstorm and the middle of, like, some back territory. Yeah, I think a modern film fan wouldn't be able to watch this now if they've seen Hateful Eight and not think of the Hateful Eight. Right. Like, or, down to the stagecoach, even the sh- the way the filming of the stagecoach is done in this movie, Tarantino, I think, took. Right. Yeah, I think he's definitely a big fan. I mean, he, he yeah. loves um, Corbucci because he mentions him in a, yes. uh, Once Upon a Time in That's America. That's who directs Rick Dalton over yeah. in Italy, and then... it. Presumably, it's maybe a relative that Rick Dalton marries, whose last name is also Corbucci. Yeah, yeah perhaps. So, yeah. Um, that and also, I think a lot of people in the modern, like, men of, like, our age or similar would recognize, like, in Red Dead Redemption, too, because they steal a lot of... Sure. Just, like, the way that it looks in the... Yeah, the, 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 the very opening the of it. Yeah. and stuff. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and also, like, I mean, those, those games and whatever, take a lot of, like, inspiration from the idea of, like, the bandits being the ones in charge and, mm-hmm. um, like, the lone men, like, going out to rescue whatever, like, the town. Yeah. But, yeah, you know, it's, it, it really speaks to a lot of, um, like, socioeconomic issues, you know, like, mm. does having money, like, preclude you from being, like, held accountable to the law? Does being poor mean that, like, you're more susceptible to running afoul of the law? Sure. Um, What is or isn't, like, crime? Um, It's got some interesting looks at, like, interracial relations because it's made very clear that um, uh, Pauline, right? Pauline is the name of um, Mm. Vondetta McGee's character. What is it? I can't remember. That's why I'm shaking my head. Anyway, so her... Mm-hmm. Um, very clear that like her and her husband were, are, are black. I mean, she's obviously mm-hmm. like black because you can yeah. see her. But um, I mean, they make Kinski dislikable too because he makes like a a racial joke at their expense early on in that movie. That is one way I think that yeah. Well, another. he makes a lot. Of, I mean, he's very um very very much like talks down to everyone yeah. and like right. views people as yeah. really just like numbers, mm-hmm. you know, to pad his, his pockets. Um, so that's interesting, you know, again, like portraying the women that are like prostitutes in the brothel as being, um, 
sort of like stand-up citizens in a lot of ways. And and the, the bounty killers are on the side of the law. I mean, they're doing, all they're doing is what the law allows them to do, and it's their job to do it. Yeah. Um, and the idea that the reason that silence even exists as a, you know, in the, like his, whatever, like modern incarnation is because, um, his own family was killed by bounty killers. Like his father, right? Or something was like killed by, um, Palakut. Yeah. As like a younger man. Mm -hmm. And that's where like. Or because at his behest, and then Silence grew up, and then Blue Polly cuts thumbs off, which is one of the funniest right, things. Yeah. That's his uh-huh. his calling card is blown off the right. thumbs. Um, and it's also kind of a interesting, and I don't know if this is the intent, but like you think of like the the title of the movie and the Great Silence, and I mean obviously it's reference to the man's name, like he's sure. the character, and you know, but it's also um, that idea of like. Um, communication from like beyond the earth like that there's like the great silence is a fact that like nothing is ever talking to us sure from far away and i guess in this instance sort of like the idea that you know god is not there godlessness to it right that it's just like these people are at the whims of these bloodthirsty not not bloodthirsty but like money hungry men that are not above like murder in order to, to earn their living um and that there is no salvation in the end like yeah. they all like despite their pleas you know and the fact that like they don't deserve to die they're all murdered and we'll just leave them here and come back for them later because what's gonna happen like their corpses are just frozen like it'll be fine yeah i mean i i read that corbucci is a socialist and it makes a lot of sense i mean the the idea here is that money and physical power will always win yeah and always dominate you um, the businessmen are portrayed negatively in this, like the idea of the, um, by, by that, like the banks and stuff like right. that. The, um, the fact that these men are all doing this and bringing in people dead for money, um, they're viewed negatively. It's, it's, it's the poor and the meek and the helpless are the ones that are viewed positively, uh, throughout. Right. And they don't win. And to me, not to get into my own like kind of obsessions, but it's very much like how Deadwood is portrayed, uh, how Deadwood portrays like the West in a lot of ways where like despite these people not being maybe the most reputable all the time, most of them are still a hell of a lot better than the moneyed character of George Hurst. Right. And they don't get to win. Like, they might at best get a compromise, um, but they never get to win. Money will always win in the end. And it's like, it feels like this is the idea behind this. Is And, and it plays with you. I think you're right. Like, you know, because the typical Western is like, you know, silence would come in and, right. you know. Oh, you're waiting for it. Right. Yeah. And and, it's, and then it's like shocking. It's, all, it's, it's you know. Yeah. Right. It's all of a sudden they're all dead. There's like an emptiness at the end of it. Yeah. Like when 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 um, Loco walks out of the saloon and just kind of casually like finishes silence off after you know he's already like defeated. Right. It's um yeah. and takes his gun. He's got like this um special right. like trick gun that pops yeah. out quick uh-huh. that he can shoot like from the hip fast. And Loco ends up taking it. It's like he's take takes everything from this man. Yes. Um and nobody gets out okay. And it's just um. I mean, it's a really beautifully filmed movie. Like, it is, Cor- yeah. Cor- Corbucci does a great job of capturing 
like the epic majesty of like these snowy plains and mountains mm-hmm. and but also the the coldness and the like almost like claustrophobic nature of like being trapped in a snowstorm and um and again like Kinski's performance is, is amazing in it and yeah from, from a cinematography standpoint out of this list some people a lot of people disagree with me this is my second favorite on the list in terms of cinematography yeah i love the way this movie looks and also just because it's so much different than anything else on the list. It is, yeah, absolutely. From a um, story perspective, it, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's radically different. Well, even visually. I mean, the yeah, way yeah, that it's yeah. filmed is very... Um, well, the setting's unique and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It, there's also a, a certain amount of, like, intimacy in the way it's filmed. And, I like, I, I can't really explain... I mean, obviously, there's, like, some intimate moments in the movie. Um, but it's a lot of very... There's not a huge amount of, like, action that takes place in the movies. There's not a lot right. of, like, gunfights or anything. You know, I mean, aside from silence, like, gunning down the criminals in the beginning, you don't really get much until the very end of the movie. Yeah, so. a lot of it's plotting. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I really I really enjoyed this movie a lot. Um, I know that it's been shown theatrically a few times in the past, like, ten years. Um, it's, like, limited run things as people have kind of, like, rediscovered it. Um, but just a really great movie. And if you've never seen it and you enjoy Westerns, like it's definitely worth watching. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, okay. So number three on your list is a fistful of dollars from 1964. First Sergio Leone movie on the list stars Clint Eastwood, John Maria Valente, Marianne Cook and Seekhart Roop has a 98% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 91% from audiences. Want to tell people a little bit about the movie and what you like about it so much. So this is a Western take on um, the Red Harvest story, which is basically a stranger arriving in town and kind of playing like disparate factions against each other um, to achieve his own ends. Um, if you've seen, I don't know, any movies like based on it. so Yeah, so we've talked about um, in the modern crime movies, uh, the number one, Frank's number one movies, Miller, Miller's Crossing, and we yeah. talked a little bit about the Red Harvest uh, story by Dashiell Hammett there. Um, I can't remember if we talked about it anywhere else. And we now talked we a little bit about, about it. Yet? Right. Yeah, we haven't talked about Ujimbo. So, but yeah, it's Dashiell Hammett's story, the Red Harvest, and Frank can go ahead and Oh, yeah, in a little yeah, bit. Yeah, Eastwood is just this drifter. Um, this is his first role as um, the man with no name, uh, which in the Dollars trilogy, which is this, um, for a few dollars more, and Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, um, he plays like this titular, not not titular because his name is in Dollars, yeah. but he plays um, this unnamed yeah. sort of... Although he's Joe here, right? Well, he's Joe just because that's... That's what, right, and he's Blondie just because... Right, and, and Blondie because Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, right, right yeah. But he's a man with no name because he's never, like, specifically... Actually named, yeah. yeah. Um, so playing, like, these two kind of, like, warring factions against each other, um, there's a lot of plot in this movie, so... <laughs> but basically, like, running afoul of them, like, they kind of figure out what he's doing, and he still right. is able to come back and yeah. bring them both down. Um, and it's... The beauty of this story is, like, this guy who's a little smarter and a little quicker than everybody else, but eventually like kind of succumbs to the odds and is still able to come back and kind of make everything right. Like bring justice to the thing or to like whatever the situation. Um, I, I love that storyline. 
Uh, it's um, You actually texted me, and I hadn't really thought of it. But probably one of my favorite, like, overall stories ever is that idea of, like, that Hammond has in Red Harvest. Um, there's a lot of small things in this movie that I, I love. Like, I... The two movies on that are above this on the list are objectively better movies, and that's why this is third. But there's certain small things about the way that Leone films this movie that this is, like, maybe my favorite like in what? the whole list. Um... So in the one, um, the one like fortress slash hideout or whatever, there's just ways that like that Mexo-American like architecture. Talking about the two brothers? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like the Mexo-American architecture is filmed and the way that he like light scenes where it's like, like he, he, he does really well with like. Like, the colors and the lighting and just... It, it feels like... I don't know. It just... It, it feels like the West to me. There's some, it's just something about it where... Like, I can't really... It's like pornography, you know? Like, I can't, like, describe it. But, like, I know it when I see it. It's like... When a Western is, like, hitting on all cylinders, it just feels like a certain... I don't know. Like, a certain feel to me and just everything about it like like the adobo adobo <laughs> adobe. adobe buildings right. and um adobe buildings would be delicious um like the reds and the oranges and I, I don't know it's just there's so much about like small things you know it's like the beginning of like him with his you know the hat and the poncho and i don't know just everything about it it just feels like Did you see this when you were young? Oh, yeah. 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 I saw this when I was probably like seven or eight, maybe for the first time. Hmm. Um, I've seen this movie, I don't know, six or seven times. Yeah. Maybe more than that. Have you seen this? You've seen this more than other Leo no, movies? No, 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 no. no. Okay. All right. I've, I've, okay. All right. Okay. I've, I've, uh, I've seen Good, the Bad, and the Ugly the, like a dozen times. Yeah. I would say. Okay. Maybe more. Um, Fistful, or for a few dollars more, is the one I've seen the least out of all of them, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, But even in comparison, so there's a certain, like, majesty to this movie as well, I think. That, like, I don't know. It's hard to explain it. Just it feels like so, like, such a perfect encapsulation of everything that, like, I love in Westerns. Mm-hmm. The villainy of, like, the bad guys, the, like, crispness of the language, the, you know, like, you gen- genuinely feel like Eastwood could lose, like, the first time you see it. Like, that he's, you know, he's been captured and beaten or whatever, and, like, that he's not going to be able to, like, survive. And yet, I mean, I don't know. It's, like, it's it's one of my favorite Eastwood portrayals of, like, a, whatever you want to call that, a cowboy or a drifter or whatever. Um... And this was his star. I think this right. This is his star making performance. Really, I think uh, in westerns is this movie. I mean, it's definitely what like allows him to yeah like use that to yeah. Because I actually think he ha- he shows a better sense of humor, um, and wryness in this movie than he does in some of the other ones that he's in. Right. I think well, he's a lot. He's a lot looser in this one to me, and I actually like that about the the man with no name. In this is like how he's. 
he's still serious, but he's a little less serious. It's also it's also the smaller movie in comparison. Mm-hmm. So it's not as like it's not as epic in terms of like the scope or span. I mean, it takes place in like you know probably a what ten mile radius or whatever oh, sure, of like yeah, yeah. a small town, maybe not even right. that much. And that's another thing that and I and doesn't necessarily go into the granular detail of everything um, right. as some of his other movies do. No, it's another thing I love about like I don't know, like this genre in specific is that they can be like these small movies and mm-hmm. still feel like really big and there's still like a lot of things yeah. that happen. You you talking about the language in this made me realize that that's one of the reasons I do like western movies and it depends on I think it it, it what I like out of westerns does depend on the language because the I love the language of the old west itself. Right. But when it's done in this kind of um it's very similar to noir. Yes. Like, in terms of how it's about having the witty, wry, pithy thing to say um, of, like, not a lot of dialogue, but very quick back and forth a lot of times. Um, words matter, right. like, and, and, and they have import to them, even though because there's less dialogue. And it's like, I, um, I really like that aspect of it. And it's sort of, like, from the perspective of Eastwood's character, it's sort of indicative of him as a gunfighter in the sense that, like, he beats you first with, like, the verbal, like, repartee, and then he's Mm -hmm. still able to shoot you dead. I mean, I like the fact, too, that, like, he's, again, not this undefeatable whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that humanization is a thing that makes, like, the heroes in Westerns, like, really great, is that, Superman is boring, you know, like, the person that's, like, impossible to defeat is kind of a boring character. But the fact that, like, I mean, even to the very end of this movie, like, Eastwood's character is still in danger of being killed. And it's basically just Providence that saves him, you know. Right. So it's not, even though he's still come out on top and it's it's basically him that's, like, you know, put an end to, what is it, the Rojas and the Baxters or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it is just, like happenstance that like saves his life that, sure like, you know and it's a bit of a pure victory well overall i mean i think that that's the tragedy of the man with no name is that sure. they all are sure really yeah. he's just kind of like he just comes out a little bit ahead in right. the end of any situation than like the person that's yeah. next to him but the person that's next to him is dead yeah so i guess it's better better to have the pure victory do you think it's important? I, I'm, I'm looking at a review from David um, Nazaire from RealFilms.com. We've had a number of his reviews uh, through the past year and a half. Um, he credits a lot of things with uh, uh, good about this movie, like Leon's, uh, you know, use of widescreen um, camera work and Eastwood's performance, and you know. Morcone's score, which we haven't even talked about, and I think we'll probably talk about that the next movie, honestly. Um, no, the next, next two movies. Yeah, but next two. But um, he says Morcone's score might be over the top sometimes, but it still complements the film really well. Um, his biggest complaint about it is he thought that the storyline itself was repetitive, um, particularly in like the middle of the movie. And he says that because neither of the families were t- sympathetic, 
that it became hard to get involved in Joe's plotting in the movie because like you didn't like kind of you just couldn't invest because it's like what does it matter like as long as they all because they're all terrible yeah but i mean it's not the point i i I don't i don't know i don't know if he has a point or not like Like, think about the the version of let me just give you like an an analogy here like I'll, I'll, i'll take a version that you like of this in miller's crossing right both of those guys are likable in some ways despite being unlikable. unsympathetic. Right, yes. Right. They're, they're, but they're likable. Right. I don't know how likable the characters are in this. So it's like, I, I wonder if like the those those roles, if you just look at it as a way it should be executed, if it's better if those roles are unsympathetic but likable. So look at like, there's two versions of this. That I consider superior to this movie. Mm-hmm. And that's um, Yojimbo. And um, another movie that was made kind of like contemporaneously with Yojimbo called Kill. Mm-hmm. Which is the same story. Okay. Um, neither of those movies particularly has sympathetic characters mm-hmm. in the roles of either rival faction. I mean... I, no, I'm saying do they need to be like... Like they could be unsympathetic, but could they need to be likable in some likable. way. Yeah. But that's... Maybe that's just me. I don't know. Like yeah. to me, the beauty of the story is that there's no lesser of two evils. It's two evils, and mm-hmm. you got to take them both out. And like, how does this one person kind of? Because Miller's Crossing ultimately um, he ends up siding with. He doesn't side. Well, he, he basically allows um, right. What's his name? Albert Finney. Albert Finney's character, character to, to to win. Yeah. And in the real like story, like nobody wins. Yes, like, they Everybody's, always. It's always right. about taking them both sure. out. So, yeah. even though I love Miller's Crossing in terms of like being like a true yeah. adaptation, it's kind of a cop out. Mm-hmm. Like in reality, sure. Gabriel Byrne should be standing and like on the wreckage of everything, right? And just wandering off with his hat like blown away, and not like letting Verna go away with um, Leo. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And in this movie, like, he needs to take them both out. Like, no matter if he leaves one alive yeah. or one is, like, sympathetic, it just defeats the whole purpose. Mm-hmm. Like, the purpose of the movie is that both of them are bad for the town, and they both need to go. The same thing with Yojimbo and same thing with Kill. Right. That's a movie we need to talk about sometime is Kill. That's one mm-hmm. of my... And maybe Yojimbo, too. Yeah. Well, definitely Yojimbo. Um, yeah, Morricone's score is great here. Um... Not the not his best collaboration with Leone, but still really good. Um, cinematography is beautiful, like just everything about it. You know, you have the iconic scene where um, he's getting uh, the Rojas brother to shoot at his chest, mm-hmm. and he's got the um, the yeah. plate underneath it, like yeah. aim for my and like just basically like freaks him out because like he already feels like this guy's almost like supernatural or unkillable right. and now he's like proving it no it's a good scene. it's a great scene what isn't that like that's that's aped in uh back to the future right back to the future three yes that same thing yep. happens mm-hmm. yeah yeah because there's tons of leone references in back to the future three but yeah that's one of them where he wears the the plate yeah i can't remember what it what it what it actually is that he puts underneath of him but it's, yeah it, the cover to a pop belly stove or something like that i think Something like, yeah. Um, 
but yeah, just I like I I love this movie and I I love Eastwood in it and um again one of my favorite westerns of all time um probably like a top maybe a top fifty movie for me of all time hmm. maybe even like higher than that because again like sentiment sentimentally I like this movie better than yeah, all was, the other ones was, so. yeah right I think that's the correct thing is like I I think this is a really good western. But there's some there's something about this one to you that's definitely yeah. there's some kind of and, and it probably attachment. is just the storyline and just like I yeah I just love like that that one like guy just bringing down like these two like huge criminal organizations it's just, right it's, yeah. it's yeah. fantastic right okay you ready to move on to number two yep okay so number two on your list is. Once Upon a Time in the West from 1968, also directed by Sergio Leone, uh, starring Henry Fonda, Charles Bronson, Jason Robards, and Claudia Cardinale, has a 98% from Rotten Tomatoes from critics and 95% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about this movie? Not a lot about this movie, but a little bit because this is a long, complex movie. Yeah, it's a pretty complex plot. Um, um, I mean, basically the, the gist is that uh, Claudia Cardinale... Um, plays a woman who's recently married to a homesteader, a widowed homesteader, um, who has this seemingly, like, useless parcel of land that he's built a, a house on. Um, on her way there, like, prior to her arriving, he's murdered. <clears throat> um, him and his whole family are murdered. And she comes and has basically inherited the property. Um, simultaneously there's, um, kind of a nameless gunman who's come into that, into town, um, and is attacked as he gets off the train by three men who were supposed to be members of a gang, uh, led by a bandit named Cheyenne. Um, but it really is the machinations of this, uh, criminal named Frank and, um, a railroad baron to like sort of expand the railroad through the land and kind of like buy it for like pennies on the dollar um so they can move the railroad further west um so then there's just like various machinations that happen to get to the point where um she's unwilling to give up the land you know she wants to like build where her husband wanted to build like this town basically to take advantage of the railroad um and Harmonica, I guess, or whatever Bronson's character's name is, um, wants to get his revenge on Frank, and you find out at the end, like, why. Um, you actually don't even know that that's what he's really trying to do until the very end, like, what the motivation is there. Um, really, really fantastic performances, like, all across the board, um, especially Fonda playing against type as the villain, um, but Jason Robards is really good. In his role as Cheyenne. Um, to me, Charles Bronson is always just kind of Charles Bronson. Um, and honestly, like, this was supposed to be uh, Eastwood's fourth collaboration. Yes. With uh, Leone, but he turned down the role mm-hmm. playing that part. Um, which is good because it's actually kind of interesting to see another actor uh, basically playing the same character. Mm-hmm. Um, and really it would have t- sort of taken away from the mystique of the man with no name to give him like a backstory. Yeah. Like that very definitive backstory. Yeah. Um, one of the more beautiful, like beautifully filmed 
Um, spaghetti westerns. I mean, this is Leone. Like, probably... I don't know. Like, I, I, I know that you think that this is, like, his masterpiece and, like, this like one of the greatest and it really is like one of the greatest westerns ever filmed but like it's 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 very epic um there's a lot of really well constructed and well like envisioned sets in this movie um it's definitely the most urban's not the right word but like civilized of leone's westerns where it like firmly takes place in like an area that is like be, becoming built up through the course of westward expansion um and one of the really like one of his only movies that really deals with that idea um that's really prevalent i guess like in a like in our country's history in terms of like the westward expansion and the expansion of the railroads and just the way that like sort of like the it's it's not like the the half barren dirt town in right. a fistful of dollars. It's, no, it's, it's yeah, it's it, it it it's a realized, you know, whatever, like functioning society, right? Um, and 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 so when I sit there and say that I think the cinematography better, I think that's why I why it is to me is because he has more sets to deal with yeah and i think he can actually take more time in because he's dealing with more sets of realizing some of those shots where i think like as the story progresses in some of his other movies that don't have to deal with as many indoor shots i think it just feels to me like the camera work can be haphazard where i think it's much more um uh set up and like you know he's he's actually thinking it through more but i think he has the luxury to do that where he didn't in some of those other movies at times and i think that's why like even the kind of interstitial scenes from a plot standpoint sometimes look better than they do in some of his other movies and i do think the interiors are really great looking a lot of times like even like in terms of color like you know it's very sparse because it's the west but there's still enough color that makes it really interesting at times particularly in the stuff with uh what is it mr morden the um railroad tycoon and frank in those scenes and then the stuff with um in the town itself yeah so it's not like i'm shitting on those other movies when i think it's better cinematography it's just that i think he had more luxury with this movie and more finances Right, because this is one of those ones that was also kind of a joint venture from uh, U.S. money as well. Yeah, he had also built his reputation as like the master of the sure the spaghetti western at that point, and yeah. like all of those movies had made money. Um, so yeah, I think there was a lot more confidence in him, and it was you know released a it was a financial success when it was released, mm-hmm. and released a critical acclaim as well. I'm pretty sure. Um, so. I love the characters in this movie. I think that they're probably, from like an individual characterization standpoint, probably the most fully realized of any characters in a Leone film. Um, in the sense that you learn so much about um, Jill, right, as Claudia Cardinale's, mm-hmm. Cardinale's name. Um, you learn a lot about Frank, about... Um, What's the railroad guy's name? Baxter or Morton? Morgan. Morton. Morton. You learn like so much about them and even about like the town itself and um, 
the fact that like kind of Cheyenne like gets behind her and like wants to help her succeed and um harmonica is that, is that am I, is that yeah, that's what they call him is yeah. harmonica yeah it's what Frank calls him um <laughs> like him using his own motivations to kind of help things along but still like solely focused on just achieving his mm-hmm. his goals um one of the greatest scenes in the movie and from my perspective is when um when Frank has been like turned on by his men and their um, harmonica realizes that they're setting up to assassinate him and kind of helps him escape um, through pointing out like where these guys are and mm-hmm. helping him like kill him so he can get away because he needs the revenge to be personal. It can't be somebody else yeah. like, like that's, you know, that's an empty victory if somebody else like has sure. the ability to like take that moment from him. And it's immediately preceded by the scene where it's there's a, it's a point of no return scene where like Frank and Harmonica are going to have to kill one of them's going to have to kill the other. Yes. And then immediately after that is when the turn happens and he helps him out, you know. And it's like yeah, there's just like yeah, because that's right after the um, the auction scene. Yes. Where yeah. Harmonica comes downstairs and offers five thousand dollars for the plot of for Jill's plot of land. And kind of gives her the hope that she can keep it, um, and really like runs afoul of mm-hmm. um, Frank and his gang, and um, it's just it's it is a really great movie. Like the the opening scene on the um, railroad platform, mm-hmm. one of my favorite in any western ever. Um, just the tension that builds, like the quietness of like everything and. The three gunmen kind of just like waiting it out, and the water dripping on the one's hat, and it, co- it to me it comes right after the famous good and the bad and the ugly scene. Yeah, right, and that's one of my favorite scenes, like in any right, movie, yeah. honestly. But talk about that shortly, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah, just the way that, like, as an introduction to Bronson's character, it's like one of the greatest introductions mm-hmm. too, just of a guy that is like a preeminent gunman, but is also not like above. Again, like, not portrayed as being, like, superhuman or mm-hmm. um, undefeatable, you know, because he is able to be kind of caught off guard a little bit. Um, the scene in the <laughs> saloon um, where Cheyenne comes in and they kind of, like, push the gun back and forth and Harmonica's just being, like, a com- like not really an asshole, but sort of kind of, I guess, trying to see... I guess trying to like make sure that it's not Cheyenne's men that tried to kill him that, you know, trying to reaffirm to himself at that point, even though you don't really know at that point that that's what's happening, that Mm. he's, that it is still Frank that he's after and that he's found, right. You know, the guy that he's looking for. And then that, that end scene where harmonica, like where you find out that Frank basically like forced harmonica to to kill his own brother. Mm. Um, and then place like shoved the harmonica in his mouth, and that was the way that, or had him like it was in his mouth, and he was like right, breathing. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then when he takes it and puts it in Frank's mouth at the end, it's just yeah. it's, um, it's fantastic. And I th- I think there's some people criticize it, but I think uh, by slowing down the ending by cutting to the flashback, but I I think it takes a lot of restraint to wait until that point, right? To show the flashback and show why he's been doing all this and show the grandness of that revenge or that he's been waiting this long to to do this sure and, and it, it delays the payoff for you as the viewer too because right yeah you don't know like right. up to that point like exactly why right 
Yeah. Whereas most of the time in Westerns, like, the revenge is... The thing that needs revenging is, like, early on enough where, like, you know the entire time. So Mm -hmm. that's what builds your investment in the character. Right. And in this, it's building that investment without ever letting you know. Um, until, yeah, the last, like, what, like, five minutes of the movie. Yeah. Basically yeah. is to, like, why. Mm-hmm. Um, really great dialogue in this movie, I think. Um, again, like, really great characterization. Like, all the characters are pretty, pretty fully formed. Um, and mm-hmm. pretty complex. You know, like, Jill is a former prostitute who's not above, like, still using her, I don't know if talents is the right word, but, like, her former profession to sort of just get by yeah like as being like yourself safe a woman alone yeah. in mm-hmm. the wilderness or the old west um yeah and i love fonda's portrayal of frank like it's a really great villain yeah um and in the sense that again he's not like a cardboard cutout like that's yeah the, the more i thought about it is like he is more complex than i maybe gave him credit for the fonda character because i mean his story arc is the guy who is really just kind of like a low-level thug who wants to be more right um and and resents the power that mr borden has over him and um which is that great scene where like when morden's dying and he goes back to like finish him off and when he realizes that as morden's like crawling to try to get like to the water to get a drink and he realizes he's dying like he just like holster you know he like uncocks and then holsters his gun again and just like lets him slowly die because he resents him that much right. um yeah there is a lot more complexity there than i was thinking yeah i mean it's um again it's, it's a really great portrayal yeah and really bold i guess to cast somebody that was a leading man and sure it completely against type as like a yeah. villain um pretty pretty rare especially back then for someone who I guess this is like post-studio system, so actors had a little more like leeway with what they portrayed, but a lot of people were really unwilling to portray themselves as villains. Sure. Um, especially if it meant they had to take the bullet in the end. Yeah, and I think he... Um, it seems like he was having fun, too, which, you know, and yeah. doing it. But I think he definitely understands and appreciates the role. Mm-hmm. It's funny, because we were talking earlier about... Um, we were talking, like, off-podcast about... Um, I asked you if... if the Great Silence is the only movie where Klaus Kinski gets a win at the end because Klaus Kinski is always the villain mm-hmm. and always dies or, like, loses at the mm-hmm. end of his movies. Yeah. And it's funny just to see somebody that's, like, typically a protagonist, right. like, being the one on the other end of that. Yeah. Um, not that Klaus Kinski is the protagonist, but, you right, know, right. obviously comes out in the, ahead in the end. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, just a, it's a, it's a beautiful movie. Um, yeah. Another great score by Morricone. My second favorite. Um, Very well paced. Uh, The plot is complex enough that it keeps you interested, but not like you don't get bogged down in like too many like disparate plot lines. Like all the plot lines are kind of running, even if it's sort of hidden at first, they're all running parallel to each other Mm -hmm. so that when they come to their, you know, when everything like comes to a head in the last 20 minutes, it all makes sense. And yeah. The two percent out of the hundred for because it's ninety eight percent from critics. The uh, the two percent is actually attributed to Roger Ebert, who gave it a two point five, and Rotten Tomatoes counts that as a negative review. Really? Isn't mm-hmm. Ebert a four star star scale? He is. Yeah. So two point five is still like I, a... sure. Um, 
his major complaint was that it was too that was, there was just too much going on. Um, but you can also tell he didn't like Leone's. Although later in life he adds the good and bad and the ugly to like his top movies list, but um, which I do think he gave a more positive review to than most at the time. But he said that um, with this movie, it's the same style, the same eerie music, the same sweaty, ugly faces, the same rhythm of waiting and violence, the same attention to small details of Western life. He says that Leone has an inability to call it quits. The movie stretches on for nearly three hours with intermission and provides two false alarms before it ends. In between, we're given a plot complex enough for Antonioni, involving killers, land rights, railroads, long-delayed revenge, mistaken identity, love triangles, double crosses, and shootouts. We're well into the second hour of the movie before the plot becomes uh, clear. And I don't. I thought that added to the movie as yeah. opposed to it took away from it. I agree. Like I, I thought it was because I. I think that there's like four or five plots going on and they're all interweaving into right. one another. And I think it adds to the complexity of the motivation of the characters along the way. And I actually think it makes it more interesting, not drags it down. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I, again, like like I said, like I think there's enough... Like by the time you realize how things are intersecting, you're so invested in the characters yeah. that... I mean, I, I think the characters come off as like really interesting and well-rounded from the very beginning where you really want to see like what happens sure. with them yeah and especially I, I... because like i mean I, don't, I mean obviously like i i i saw this movie after i'd seen his other three major um spaghetti westerns like the dollars trilogy mm-hmm. um so i i saw it in the same order i guess that probably most people would have seen it like in that were alive at the time but like you're almost so I don't want to say worn out, but like the whole man with no name shtick, like the quiet reserve drifter that like is trying to like kind of force things into action is almost, I don't want to say played out, but like it's, it's refreshing to have like these other characters that are building like the majority of the plot and like building like the action. And he's almost like a secondary character within that. Right kind of even just like a phantom that sort of like appears to mm-hmm. kind of like move a scene along or like, I don't know. Well, there's actually action and reaction <clears throat> right? in this because this character will do one thing and it causes this character to react in this way and then to, to make plans to do this thing where not, yeah, those, the man with no name movies. Um, I mean, that exists, but it's, I, I don't, I don't know how to describe it. Because it's going to sound like I'm shitting on him, and I'm not. Because I think the good and bad, the ugly is like nearly perfect. But, um, but I, I think the 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 further complexity of this plot, yes, adds better characterization. Where I think the plot of some of those other movies is, I don't want to say. It's not. It's simplistic, not simple. Right. Like, <clears throat> there's a very. And we'll talk more about it in a few yeah. minutes for Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Right. There's like, while there are three competing, three competing forces for the same goal in that movie, the plot is very much point A to point B to point C to the sure. finale. Right. Whereas in Once Upon a Time in the West, it's again, you know, like, like you said, it's that the motivation of Frank is different than the motivation of Jill. Right. And even though, like, they're sort of... 
looking at the same thing they're looking at from completely different perspectives mm-hmm. and it's true for same thing with frank and mr morden right and cheyenne and you know right. and again sure. like I, I like the idea that the the nameless like stoic gunman is kind of just a plot device in it sure like, he's not the main character he's Right. Well, he's that he has that singular focus, but these other things are kind of happening along the path to that right. and he's reacting and making choices along the way and Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that also adds a lot to it. Yeah, but really good performance from everybody in the yeah. movie. Um Absolutely. Not the biggest Charles Bronson fan. Um mostly because of the the movies he makes. I mean, like I like Mr. Majestic and mm-hmm. Death Wish is is fine, but um I certainly liked him here much yeah. more than I do in his later films of the 70s. Yeah, he's got a very, like, young... Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, it's just, it's 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 interesting to see him perform in, like, a role like that. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great movie. Yeah. Um, it's definitely worth watching if you're... I mean, I think if you're a lover of movies in general, like, you should see it. But yeah. especially if you're a fan of westerns, like, it's one of the best westerns ever made. Yeah. Okay, so number one on the list, um, as we've spoiled like five times now, is Sergio Leone's 1966 film, The Good and the Bad and the Ugly, starring Clint Eastwood, Eli Wallach, and Lee Van Cleef. Uh, It has a 97% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 97% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie and what you love about it so much? Um, So again, like we've talked about, this is the story of basically three men, Um, Clint Eastwood's... um, man with no name uh who's dubbed blondie in this movie um tuco who's a mexican like bandito slash gunman and um angel eyes um who's a bounty hunter you know who's also like basically just a mercenary yeah um and the three of them are ultimately looking for this cache of confederate gold um that's buried somewhere that like it's 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 a mystery like they generally know where it's buried but it's a mystery like specifically so all three of them are trying to get there um and sort of like double crossing each other like throughout um tuco and blondie kind of start out on the same side um running this like elaborate scam where blondie captures tuco turns him into the authorities he's about to get hung and then blondie like will shoot the noose so that tuco can flee um some great stuff, really great interplay between those two, specifically, um, just because Tuco is such a, I don't know if smarmy is the right word, but just kind of like this dirty, scummy, like, I don't know. I mean, it's it's Eli Wallach playing a Mexican, which I guess is kind of like weird and would not fly like in the modern culture, but he plays him as this. This guy that's easily underestimated, but still, like, contains this ability to be, like, cunning and dangerous. Um, Eastwood, like, is at his pinnacle of playing, you know, the the lone gunman who's able to get out of any situation. And Van Cleef as Angel Eyes is, like, maybe my favorite, one of my favorite villains, like, ever, probably. Um, just in the sense that he's so cold and menacing and calculated and always feels like he's a step ahead of them in the sense that he's also not like 
I mean, you know, at one point, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is where Tuco, <clears throat> Tuco's captured um, Blondie, but then Blondie's gotten away because, like, the Union is, like, shelling this town and he's able to, like, escape in the confusion. And then Tuco catches him again and basically leads him through the desert until he, like, passes out from dehydration. And the makeup effects on Eastwood are just amazing in that yeah. point, like, with, like, <clears throat> his cracked lips and his, like, cracked skin. And it just, it, it feels, like, so so dry and painful to see him and you know Eastwood comes back from that and for the most part you know and Wallach is like beaten up and captured at different points and obviously like almost hung and Angel Eyes is just kind of like moving through and like sort of like following them and um ultimately leading to the three of them having um a Mexican standoff I suppose in the graveyard where the confederate gold is buried um in one of the greatest scenes in my opinion in like cinema um, that standoff between the three of them, just like the tension and how high stakes everything is. And, you know, because all three of them have been portrayed as being like cunning and capable, like you're really not sure. I mean, I guess you know who's going to come out on top, but like it, there's that uncertainty that maybe like Eastwood might like not be the victor. Right. Um, just beautifully shot. Like, I, I love the way the movie looks. And I understand your point about Once Upon, Once Upon a Time in the West and the sets and stuff. But I just feel like of capturing the majesty of the desert and, like, the open West, I think that this is maybe the greatest example hmm. in any Western ever of just making you feel like not only the endless possibility of, like, the openness of the West, but also, like, the dangerous aspect of the heat and the sun and the desolate and like the isolation. Um, and again, just like it's got some really snappy dialogue in it. Um, Tuco has some great lines. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 I love that character and one of the greatest scores ever in any film. And I think one of the most identifiable scores, I mean, like probably right up there with something like, like the Imperial March or whatever, you know, where as soon as you hear it, like, you know, immediately what it is and something that's like transcended the original movie that it's in to be like so many times, either in parody or like homage where there's something going on where people are in some sort of like stalemate or conflict with each other. And you have that music swell and like, you immediately know like what that music means. And Yeah. But I, yes, the most iconic out of all of them, which is the main theme and ecstasy of gold in that last scene you're yeah. talking about. Ex- the ecstasy of gold makes that scene. Yes. Like that scene's not the same if that music's not there. Um still well filmed, but not the same. It's not the same thing. Um so yeah, I mean absolutely. Um I just think like the main theme and uh, there's like four four songs in Once Upon a Time that and again, it's like one of these like one A, one B type right. things where we're just going to slightly disagree on those. But it's like I, I think there's like four different themes, and uh, the man with the harmonica song is just one of the best things I think it I've is ever really heard, good. Like in my life, yeah. But um, but yeah, Morricone's like just nailing everything like during this time period with these westerns. And we know now, like, you know, I mean, it's like most people probably know it now more because of Tarantino, I would think, right? Like most probably like modern moviegoers probably know Morricone's work from Kill Bill and 
that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's probably true. Um, I mean, and just pop culture because Ecstasy Gold, the theme from Good and Bad and the Ugly, like all of those are, and the theme from um, Once Upon a Time too. Right, like is highly parodied. Um, it's it's used a lot in television shows and commercials and those kind of things. Yeah. But again, like to me, the thing that makes this the number one is that I think that I think that no one exemplifies the lone gunfighter as well as Eastwood does mm. in the way that he, the narrow squint of his eyes, this like very severe line of his mouth, um, the slight stubble around like you know the chin and the the cheeks and. Like the little like cigarello like sticking from his mouth and the the flat brimmed hat and the poncho and just the way that like he stands with like one shoulder slightly cocked high so his hip can like drop down so he can like draw his guns faster. Mm-hmm. It's just there's so much like iconography like in that performance. Sure. And this is the like ultimate culmination of that performance. Absolutely. And the fact that I honestly like I really feel like Van Cleef in this role is the quintessential Western bad man. Like, mm-hmm. the guy that just, you know, just his his cold demeanor and his ability to, like, smile. Like, he's like a like a coiled serpent or something, like, every time. I think the black hair, the black clothing, the right. mustache. Like, I mean, I think also kind of highly I mean, the scene, influential in pop culture. The scene towards the beginning when he's in the cabin with the guy... Um, that he's, you know, he has the commission to kill mm-hmm. and you know, he's about to kill him and he's just kind of like toying with him. It really is just like a, like a cat and a mouse almost just, he's kind of like mm-hmm. batting him back and forth and letting him feel like he might be mm-hmm. okay. And like, he knows that he's going to kill him. It's just sure. that he's so like consummately evil, but also controlled that he can do that. Yeah. And I don't know. It's just, he's, yeah, I, again, Tarantino comes up here it, it, when I was watching that scene this time from, because I haven't watched this in a while now. Like, um, I want to say last time I probably watched it was like close to 15 years ago. Oh. Chuck's maybe like, um, and, but I watched that scene about the way he's toying with him and I couldn't help but think of the Christopher Walken, Dennis Hopper scene a little bit from, um, yeah. True Romance and wondered if like Tarantino, was thinking a, a little bit of that when he wrote that Walken stuff. Cause like Walken knows he's going to kill him no matter right. what, you know, and it's, it takes, just takes Dennis Hopper a little while, a couple minutes to get there and realize it too. And that's when that inner exchange really picks up. Right. But, um, and then as Dennis Hopper forcing him to. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then Hopper has realizes, Oh, I'm going to fuck with him now. Like, uh, but, but I'm yeah, I wonder if Tarantino age, had right? that, like when he's uh, the, the angel eye stuff, like in the back of his mind a little bit. Yeah. But I mean, Van Cleef is one of yes. my favorite, um, supporting actors slash i mean he usually plays the heavy just because he looks evil mm-hmm. um but like again like i love him here um eli wallach is great as tuco mm-hmm. and just again like the setting itself is such like a big character in terms of like the desert and the the high plains and then the dusty town like the sleepy town with the graveyard where the Me- the confederate gold is buried and i don't know i just i so the biggest criticism of this movie always violence, like in all these movies, there's yeah. people sitting there talking about the violence. But I'm just going to ignore that. We've talked about that enough as it is. Um, 
with this movie specifically, multiple critics, when they had bad things to say about it, ultimately just came to the idea that everything was too much and over the top. That the performances were, like, so Variety said that, you know, um, it's unfortunate Leone allows several excursions into laughably sentimental characterization and, and that all three actors overplay to the point of absurdity at times. Um, and then also mentions in the same review that Morricone's uh, music and Simi's Baroque art direction further con- contribute to the picture's too muchness. Uh, Ebert makes some similar claims initially in his initial review about how, um, like, Leone has this insistence on showing you, like, every little detail of right. everything that's going on and just drawing things out to a point where. I don't think he, he kind of questions like does it matter at some point because there's so much just small detail building to something that you're losing the bigger picture and I see I do see where they're coming from but I don't agree yeah I mean to me the the thing about Sergio Leone that really makes him like the greatest like I I, I would argue Sergio Leone is the greatest director of westerns who's ever lived, like who captures the American West the best in its mythic sense. And I think it's because he looks at things as being, it almost is like a fable. It's like a fairy tale kind of, and these are not, I don't know, like the, his focus on like minutia is just his love, I think for the look and feel and whatever, like the ambiance of the era. But the most interesting, like, Once Upon a Time in the West has the title that really feels like the most mythical, but it's the most realistic and personal portrayal. Mm -hmm. Whereas the other three movies leading up to that point, and this one like is the grand culmination, I think of that is the, you know, the making like the, the myth of the West, the Mm -hmm. myth of the freedom and the gunfighter and the bad man and these people are like they're more acting as like symbols of things rather than characters but in that sense like i think that the actors capture like the heart of the character and still make them i mean they're iconic roles like to me those three characters like and the fact that you know the the opening like over that score with, like, the freezing of their faces and stuff, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Like, it's just, I mean, I don't know, it's just amazing to me. And Yeah. Like, really, I don't know. It's it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Like, it's definitely, like, it might be top 20 ever. Um, definitely one of the movies that I can consistently go back to and watch, like, over and over and never lose interest. Like, never feel bored or i don't know like i always love watching it and yeah one of the i mean honestly like it's one of the things that gives me like clint eastwood to me has something i don't know there's something with that man over the past like 25 30 years that i've just kind of lost like a lot of interest in him but i'll still always love like those early that early era clint eastwood like, up through, like, the 80s? Well, I, I don't know how... It, it, I remember feeling interesting at the time, but I don't know how, in hindsight, because I haven't actually not listened back to that episode because I'm so pissed at myself for the audio, but um, 
the Western episode that we did, the modern Westerns, I think it's episode 17 or 19. Right. There, I, I do remember us having a long conversation, like probably t- maybe too long, I don't know, about Clint Eastwood from when we talked about Unforgiven. Right. And talked about him in these roles and then kind of like his car- career trajectory and like how... Because you had a very particular reading of Unforgiven in terms of like what you thought was actually like he was trying to do there with that character to some degree. Like yeah. he was trying to like almost like write the legacy of the man with no name. And um, I remember that being an interesting take on it. So yeah. that that's available if anybody wants to go back and listen to that. But we have discussed him at length before like in that aspect that you just mentioned about. And that, that actually might be my last... Clint Eastwood movie that I actually really enjoy is Unforgiven. Yeah, I'd have to really look at it, but but in these roles, like specifically, like, I love like his his charm and his ruggedness and his suaveness and mm-hmm. just the look. I mean, like to me, it's like the quintessential like gunfighter look is that Clint Eastwood man mm-hmm. with no name. So yeah, but yeah, just an amazing movie and one of my favorites of all time. Awesome. Any final thoughts on any of it? No, I mean it was good watching all these movies again. Um, yeah, I think it was interesting as you were sitting there talking that um, you're right. Like those early, the, the the three Man With No Name movies is kind of like about the myth of the West. Yeah. He ends with, even though it's has the fable title, he ends with a very more realistic look, I right. think, of the West. Um, and about like growing and expanding and city building and you know, like what's to come. But it's the same year that Corbucci does The Great Silence, which is a different look. Like, you right. know, in... In Leone, good ultimately kind of prevails to some degree. Sure. There's there's hope. In Corbucci, it like you know, it builds to the idea there's no hope. Well, right, because the West really was like about the subjugation of people and like. Yeah. There's a lot of really like negative things that we kind of gloss over just in the myth of the romanticization of like that yeah. time period. But, but it's funny. It's like I was just thinking like Corbucci wins. Like that argument wins. Oh yeah. Um. It, when you get into what I would call like the postmodern look at right. um, uh, at westerns, um, yeah, like his his perspective is 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 the one that like kind of wins out, right? So, but yeah, okay. I mean, it was a really fun episode to do. Yeah. So. All right, so just make sure next week to check out the uh, top five movies involving female protagonists, um, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Everybody have a great week. Yep. Have a good night.